This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Finding the courage to face big problems head on, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Erica Grotto. Today I've got another round of interviews with the sponsors who made our annual conference happen, Medically Home and Innovalon. But first, as always, let's hear what's happening in healthcare finance news. Here's HFMA Senior Editor Nick Hutt and HFMA Policy Director Sean Stack. Hello, everybody. We are discussing the final rule for the Medicare inpatient prospective payment system for fiscal year 2024, which begins October 1st. Even as more and more services migrate out of the inpatient setting among the HFMA audience, I'd say this rule still is probably the most watched of all the rules that CMS issues annually. So we're going to talk about the general payment rate also a steep decline in uncompensated care payments, and then changes to the calculation of disproportionate share hospital payments. None of those subtopics is likely to be greeted with enthusiasm by hospitals, just in terms of how they played out in this rule. Sean, first of all, what should folks know about the payment rate? Yeah, so the payment rate didn't come in where we thought it should come in, but the um, final rule increased Medicare inpatient rates by a net of 3.1% for fiscal year 2024. So that's compared with fiscal year 2023, and that's for hospitals that are meaningful use users of electronic health records and submit quality measurement data, so fully compliant hospitals. The 3.1% payment reflects a hospital market basket increase of 3.3, as well as a productivity cut of 0.2%. Overall, the agency will increase hospital payments by $2.2 billion compared to fiscal year 2023, which, of course, also includes a $957 million decrease in disproportionate share hospital payments and a $364 million decrease in new medical technology payments. So some really hard sticking points there at the end. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to get into that a little bit in just a second. We say this with these different rules, but do check out the published rule in the Federal Register for guidance on the projected update for your specific hospital based on whether you're rural or urban, based on bed count, geographic region. There's quite a bit of variation in all of those categories and others stemming from factors like the wage index and reclassifications. Right. So as you just touched on, one of the key supplemental payments every year for disproportionate share hospitals is uncompensated care payments. And this was kind of an unwelcome surprise in the final rule because we weren't really given an inkling in the proposed rule that such a big drop in payments was in the offing. What details can you give on that? Well, I'm going to start being snarky here because this is a snarky category for me. So (laughs) CMS finalized its slaughter of the inpatient hospital disproportionate share payments for hospitals, of course, to treat the most vulnerable patients 
in healthcare, they cut the dish funding by almost $1 billion. And then to add insult to injury, the agency stated that their actuaries estimate that the rate of the uninsured is set to decline from 9.2% in fiscal year 23 to 8.3% in fiscal year 2024. I guess CMS has not seen the rapid unravel of state Medicaid's enrollment over the past several months, which, as you know, Nick, is being investigated by a lot of news outlets and a lot of groups. And it really actually even contradicts the Department of Health and Human Services estimates that 15 million individuals will leave Medicaid once the continuous enrollment provision winds down next year. And only a third of those will be eligible for marketplace subsidies. And keeping in mind that most of those going into marketplace are going to have a $9,000 a year annual deductible, which is a lot of money for someone who's coming off of Medicaid. So very disappointing and very frustrating area here to the dish cuts, I think. Yeah, it really is. Uh, for anyone who's familiar with the formula for determining those payments, there are three factors, I believe. And the one that drove this steep decrease was, as you just touched on, an improvement in the projected uninsured rate. And amid the, the Medicaid unwinding, you know, that projection, needless to say, could wind up being optimistic. And then the general disproportionate share hospital payment formula will be affected by provisions that, without getting too far into the weeds here, restrict the number of Medicaid patient days that can be included in a hospital's payment formula in states with certain types of Section 1115 demonstrations. And the fewer days that you're allowed to include, the lower your payment will turn out to be. One of these new restrictions establishes that if there's an 1115 demonstration in your state to set up a funding pool for subsidizing uninsured or underinsured care, any patients who receive that funding cannot be included in the Medicaid patient day allotment. And CMS did some very rough calculations and found that nearly $2,500 per bed could be affected for disproportionate share hospitals in the six states that currently have these pools. So Sean, I don't know if you want to speak to those specific provisions, and just also overall with everything we've discussed here, it seems like we're looking at a steady kind of chiseling away of reimbursement, especially for hospitals that can probably least afford a revenue fall off. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that limiting the inclusion of those patient days could be a critical impact to some hospitals, that along with the wage index shifts that you mentioned earlier. Folks really need to grab those addendums and model out the impacts to their facilities. I mean, there are a few good things coming out of the role, the change in graduate medical education payments for rural emergency hospitals that's aimed to better support graduate medical education training in rural areas. So that's good news. There was, however, a halt, which we saw coming, the halt and cancellation of the new COVID-19 treatment add-on payments due to the end of the pandemic. And then the final rule pretty much adopted all of the changes in the quality reporting and value programs for the hospital value-based purchasing program. Those are some additional areas there to mention. Anything that, that we missed that you want to mention, Nick? No, I don't think so. I think we've hit on the, the highlights or the lowlights, as it were. Thank you, everybody, as always, for listening. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Nick. Sometimes my favorite interviews are the ones that start out with one topic and take an unexpected turn midway through. That happened in a conversation I had recently with Raphael Rakowski and Rami Karjan, co-founders of Medically Home. We started out discussing care models, but when it came right down to it, what they really wanted to talk about was care. I believe that we're at this extraordinarily interesting juncture 
where all the models we have, and particularly in healthcare, the care and the delivery model in and around how we pay for it is causing a significant amount of problems that are obvious. One is a lot of patients are underserved because the cost of the care is so high um, and it's focused on reimbursement rather than changing the way the care is delivered. So the the economics of care delivery have reached a point now where more and more patients are underserved. And that's a that's not only a strategic, but it's a moral problem for the country. Second, the care model we've lived with up until now is based on patients coming to buildings and they're all facilities based and they're all centralized where the ease of the care delivery is focused on the provider of the care rather than the receiver of the care. And the economics of that are fairly significant. 65% of the cost of care in a facility is the overhead in the facility, which means only 35% of all the money being funneled into healthcare is actually being used for healthcare. It's actually being used to support this infrastructure. So those are just two examples. Rami can go through a lot more, but we believe the payment model, the reimbursement model, the economics are what's causing the problems and driving the need for new care models as opposed to the other way around. We think the economics of the model don't work anymore, driving the need for innovation. And, and Eric, if you want proof to the failings of the intersection of the payment model and the care model, you know, it's failing the patients as witnessed by high readmission rates, the difficulties we have with providing access for patients. It's failing the facilities because so many of them by the hundreds now are forcing to close. And it's failing the, the payers and the employers who face ever increasing rates, ever increasing premiums. So that is proof across the stakeholder group of those failings at that intersection. Where do you think the resistance is? You know, why are we clinging to models that clearly aren't working for us anymore? Because the people that are hired to operate the models are not hired to disrupt them. And the size of these models, I mean, healthcare alone is, you know, $3.5 trillion. And the hospitals alone is a third of that. So very few people have the gravitas to go enter in a career in any of these institutions and say, I'm here to disrupt and change it. It was in the late 1980s, Erica, it was a real estate story. This person was buying a house in Bergen County and, and it was very inexpensive relative to all the other houses in the neighborhood. And they couldn't understand why it was such a great bargain. And the real estate broker took them through the garage and the second time took them through the back came with their kids, they all loved the house. And finally, when they were getting ready to close, they finally went through the front. And right in front of the entrance, the house is this gigantic boulder. And the woman, the mother, fell on the boulder and cut her nose and she said to her husband, this is ridiculous, you can't move into this house, there's boulders in the way. And the real estate broker said, you know, the previous family that lived here for 25 years said the same thing when they were getting ready to buy the house. And she says, well, how did they get past that? She said, it's a funny thing. After a while, you don't see the rock anymore. You just walk around it. And they love the house. So the size of the problem in healthcare is a gigantic rock that everyone's walking around. And everyone says, well, there's the rock. We just got to walk around it. We'll just keep increasing rates. Yeah, more and more people won't get healthcare. That's sad. Too bad for them. And then we'll raise more philanthropy money for those people that can't actually get care. And then we'll just tap into that. And we'll just keep going, walking around the rock. And that's what people do. That's human nature. Our listeners are, some are leaders um, and in a position to really make change. Some are, you know, just kind of staffers who go and do their jobs every day. So whoever you are, what is your starting point to making whatever change you can in your organization? I think it's by telling the truth because 
I don't know how many meetings or how many moments of cognitive dissonance there are, at least that Rami and I go to, where we look at each other and go, did they really say that? And people know when they're not telling the truth. People know when the status quo is intolerable, but they don't have the authority or the power to make a difference. And the first place to make a difference is just telling the truth and out loud saying, you know, this is this is pretty serious. Is there anything we should be doing about this, thinking about this? And depending on where they are in the organization, to your point, Erica, they probably the person they're talking to, their boss also probably feels like he or she is powerless. So my answer to your question is we need to create a generation of people that have personal agency. They believe they have authority by virtue of the fact that they're here and they have a life and they have a brain. You know, that's how I raised my kids. That's how Rami has raised his kids, that we have a role in this world. If we don't feel that way over time, things like that are happening now in our major institutions will continue to become a, a really big issue. So whoever you are that's listening, you, you have a role in making the world a better place. And that's the mantle of responsibility that you were given and, and you jerk away from that. And I, I think that applies across every hierarchy of the organization, Erica. And then the question is, well, as, as you drive that agency and drive that change, what do you anchor yourself on? And the temptation is anchor yourself on whatever the business model of your organization is as it relates to this particular problem in healthcare. That's also not going to work, as we know. And so part of what has to happen is we all have to anchor first and foremost on the patient and work back. What is it that we need to do to create much better outcomes for the patients? What is it we need to do to create much better access for the patients? What is it we need to do to create many more options for the patient in a way that's financially sound? Work back from that, because if you try to lower the cost, you're inevitably going to provide less care and less access. Less care and less access inevitably provide worse outcomes. Worse outcomes will cause the cost to go up, <laughs> and then you've set yourself in a trap. So it's got to start with what are we doing that is creating better outcomes, better access, better availability, better outcomes for the patient. And every organization from everybody who's listening to your podcast has an opportunity to do that. I, I believe that deeply. I always invite listeners to let us know what they are doing. And, you know, occasionally I'll have some guests uh, issue a challenge to listeners. So listeners, consider yourself challenged. I want to know what you're doing. I want to know what you're doing to make whatever change that you have the power to make in your organization. So thank you very much, both of you, for, for joining me today. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Thank you for the time. Medically Home operates a decentralized care model for patients with serious or complex illnesses in partnership with health systems, physician groups, and payers to safely provide emergency and hospital-level care for their patients at home. Medically Home provides all that is needed, including the clinical protocols, reimbursement model, platform technology, and fulfillment of the clinical services required for partners to deliver care in the home. For more information, visit medicallyhome.com. One of the best parts about being at annual conference is hearing from people who know how to tackle the biggest problems our members are facing. I was thrilled to sit down in Nashville with Julie Lambert, President and General Manager for Inovalon Provider, and Lori Zindel, Vice President of Business Development for Inovalon, about a recent survey and what it means for the industry. Last year, Inovalon surveyed the market across acute ambulatory and post-acute RCM executives about their top priorities. Uh, what was on their radar in that survey? 
Well, to sum it up, the top three priorities that came through loud and clear were number one, improving the overall patient experience. There are so many ways and opportunities to do this, especially when it comes to getting a patient prepared and ready for an appointment or a counter, which starts with ensuring correct and complete demographic information and identifying their eligibility. Without this, it's challenging to find all facets of insurance coverage, submit claims, issue patient statements, and collect reimbursement. Second was retaining staff while having to replace and hire and train that new staff as well. When we continue to hear about burnout and turnover that spans across nurses and office staff, and with the complexities of healthcare and the format and requirements of each payer being somewhat different and nuanced, it's really hard to scale and keep up with the workload and the continuous changes payers seem to make, let alone train on all of that. So that's number two. Number three is improving the revenue cycle process overall and the workflows for staff. And that really ties together with number one and number two. As I mentioned earlier, the complexities of Medicare, Medicaid, and each individual commercial payer from how the benefit investigation needs to be completed and verified to how claims are submitted and confirming the right reimbursement, it just really calls for a dynamic workflow. And it's really hard to survive and keep up with all of that without having the built-in logic, algorithms, intelligence, tracking, and trending capabilities. Uh, your data is spot on, Julie. Um, these are the th same things I'm hearing from customers in all areas of healthcare. And what we're finding is um, there's one thing that providers can focus on that really address all three of those issues. Um, a recent HFMA survey indicated that about 80% of their uh, respondents, CFOs and senior leaders in, in Revenue Cycle, said that denial management required the most expertise and was the most time consuming. So if you focus on that denial management, Reducing denials, uh, obviously if you reduce the denials, you reduce the, the staffing needed to support that. You're improving your cash flow and you improve your patient uh, experience because nobody wants to get an incorrect bill from the provider. They want to see that timely. So truly um, combining all of that solves a lot of those problems. And there was another survey that, that shows that about an average of 15% of um, positions in the business office are vacant. And the smaller the hospital, the higher that goes. It's up to 33%, I think they, the respondent said. Um, we had one critical access hospital that had two vacancies out of the four people. Wow. And yeah, and nobody was applying. <laughs> so yeah. if nobody's applying for that job, you know, that's a, that's a hard challenge yeah. to, to, have to staffed. fix. Have staffed. So working with them, you know, first of all, reduce the denials. So that's the less they have to touch. And then if you can automate that workflow, you can do more with less. And so it kind of solves that challenge. If you're not finding the people, find a way to, to have less to do. Right, right. Yeah, have the and right systems it, you know, in place. You kind of, you talked about three three areas, but they all are so, so connected, right? And especially if you think about the workforce, if you don't have the workforce, you can't. As you said, Lori, you can't make changes when you're just trying to get by with 50% of the people that you right, normally right. would have. So and it's kind of a vicious circle because the less people you have, the more your AR grows, which means the more people you need to get. I mean, you just run this vicious circle. Mm -hmm. So you've got to solve. I had a, a CFO who we called it you're like your bathtub's overflowing and you're trying to bail it out best you can, but nobody's shutting off the tab. You know, you have to right. shut that tap off of the stuff going into your accounts receivable. I, somebody else called it, you're swatting flies and you're not closing the window. You know, you've got mm -hmm. to solve 
the workflow and reduce that, and then you can attack attack it from both ends. Yeah, good analogies. So in, in the survey, what did the respondents say were the barriers from moving forward? What's stopping us from just closing that window, turning off the tap? Yeah, and it really hasn't changed over the years, and it's really not much different from any other industry. When you break it all down, it really comes to budget, time, and resources. And the challenges executives face from time to time are the same, but the barriers typically come back to budget, time, and resources. As a matter of fact, 80% of the respondents selected one of these as their three key challenges. I will also say, however, post-pandemic, these three constraints have intensified. According to the AHA, hospital operating margins fell from negative 7.7% in December 2022 to negative 1% in January 2023. And this is following persistent negative margins throughout the last year. And this really makes efficiencies and cash flow a top priority. And anything that can be done to improve operating margins through getting better reimbursement, faster reimbursement from the payers and collecting from the patient in in the most efficient and and timely, easy fashion can really, really make a difference. And the other interesting fact is that as we were talking about, as Lori mentioned, hospital turnover rates are at about 22%, with the average cost of turnover for a bedside RN coming in around $40,000. And with all of that increase in cost, we're also having an aging population. That means more Medicare and Medicaid and shrinking our margins more, because you just can't cover that with Medicare and Medicaid. So it's, it's more critical to now be managing your commercial payers where you can make up that difference. But then everything you read about commercial payers is they're taking longer to pay, they're denying our claims, you know, we fight for everything that we can get from them. So with all of that, again, I I go back to the denial management, making sure you're getting paid appropriately and timely. And the good news is there are some solutions that you can implement. Some big goals, but certainly worthy ones, ones that I think everyone is continuously working towards. So Julie Lambert, Lori Zindel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Yep. Thank, thank you for having us. Visit anoalon.com to learn more. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Additional reporting is by Nick Hutt and Sean Stack. Linda Chandler does our sound editing and was in charge of production on site in Nashville. Brad Dennison is the Director of Content. Our President and CEO is Ann Jordan. Linda rocks. That's your Easter egg.